Thank you all for joining us today. Today we've got a great group, and uh, this is the conservative budget dis budgeting discussion. Uh, we're trying to have these once a month to have a good overview about what's going on in other states with their with their fiscal policy, best practices, things of that nature, but also discuss what's happening in D.C. As we know, the things that are happening in D.C., a lot of these big budget acts that they're putting through and trying to put through Congress, hopefully the Build Back Better or the Build Back Bankrupt Act is now dead. Uh, but these are also influencing state budgets. And so it's something that we've got to make sure we keep an eye on uh, as we go through this. And of course, there's a lot of things that are happening across the states. Whenever you think about COVID-19, uh, restrictions, mandates, the labor market, and all of these things, of course, influence what's happening within the state budget, within the state capitals that are across the nation. So today I've brought in three panelists. We have the first one that will be a part of this discussion is Patrick Gleason, is a longtime friend, a good, happy warrior. Uh, he's a director of state affairs at Americans for Tax Reform, for ATR. Um, so many of you already know him. Um, he also has a nice Forbes column where he writes a lot of good things. And I'll share some in our chat, some of the pieces that he's wrote, written recently and published there. So thank you for being here with us, Patrick. The The next person that I introduce and is um, Michael Lucci. He is a senior policy fellow at the State Policy Network at SPN. Many of you will also know him. He is another good, happy warrior who's always bringing together some some good ideas, thinking outside the box. He worked for a while um, there in Illinois, uh, went to D.C. for a while as at the Tax Foundation, and um, now he doesn't live far from me down here in in, in near Austin, Texas. Near uh, he lives, I believe, in Cedar Park or maybe Leander. I live in Round Rock, which is just north of Austin. So it's good to see him around more often. Uh, so thank you for being here with us, Michael. And then last but certainly not least is Kurt Couchman. He is a senior fellow in fiscal policy for Americans for Prosperity. He's published in a lot of different things. Um, he's also worked for the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, Defense Priorities, and several members of the U.S. House of Representatives, and even the Cato Institute. Um, he's done a lot of good work in budgeting um, and both at the state and, and mostly at the federal level, which is one of the things I wanted him to discuss today. But he's also another one of those happy warriors. Uh, there's a lot of them that are out there, and he's always trying to push the envelope of some good big ideas. And so I think we'll have a good discussion today to really start to dig into what's happening across the states. So um, let's just open it up. You know, first, I think with the big, the big question that I have for each of you, and I'll start with you, Patrick, is... You know, what is the situation with within state budgets across the nation? Um, and where do you really think that's going to be some of the big you know, maybe fights uh, or big opportunities? I want to talk about obstacles later, but what are some of the big things that you're seeing right now across the state, Patrick? Yeah, state, well, across the nation. Yeah, I'd say given uh, the glut of federal cash that states are sitting on, in, in addition to the better than expected uh, state tax collections, you know, there's never been as little excuse right now to raise taxes. So that said, in terms of where we play offense and defense, we're looking at a, a playing board uh, that is mostly offense compared to previous years. It's kind of the opposite um, dynamic we had right after the Great Recession when budgets were in the red everywhere and we were facing bad tax hikes, even in red states. Um, this is now kind of the opposite scenario where states have, a lot, in many cases, more cash than they know what to do with. 
Um, and so, you know, tax increases aren't on the table in most states, although they are certainly in some like California, but where in states where tax relief is on the table. So where we had 14 states pass income tax relief last year, we're seeing that uh, trend continue at pace this year. You know, I see we have Iowa here just had their governor come out and propose moving down to a 4% flat tax. Uh, governor Larry Hogan proposed the largest tax cut in Maryland's history this week. Mississippi uh, just passed a income tax phase out, out of their house, and there's a good chance that that could get through the Senate. And then we even have in other states where, you know, they have relatively hospitable tax climates and relatively low tax burdens. I mentioned Tennessee. They're still looking for ways to improve their tax code in that state. Things like getting rid of the professional privilege tax, which fortunately most states don't have, but also doing some things that other states could do, like things like decoupling from certain aspects of the federal tax code that could both provide tax relief and make the state more attractive. So those are some things we're looking at, as also as, and I won't go too much into this because others might want to, and I know Cicero uh, Institute has been leading on this, but really interested in finding ways that state lawmakers and local lawmakers can take this flood of revenue and get, either give it back to taxpayers put into savings or a combination of the two such that this glut of revenue doesn't get permanently baked into spending baselines so we have larger government in perpetuity. So we would very much like to avoid that and tax relief is a great way to avoid that. And so those are some of the general trends we're seeing. We are on a very much offensive footing this year uh, compared to most years. And so uh, that's good news. And it looks like as with last year, most states are just ignoring uh, the federal prohibition on state tax relief that was in the American Rescue Plan Act, which I think we all think is going to eventually get struck down in court completely. But in the meantime, it's nice to see states just disregarding that. So uh, I'll just end it just some initial uh, observations with that. Perfect, Patrick. That's that's good. And I, I did share your one of your pieces recently on 2021 has been a banner, banner year for state income tax relief. Why 2022 may top it. So I like how you're pushing the envelope. Hey, say, look, we've got some good things done in 2021, but let's really keep that moving forward in 2022. Um, so we'll let, we can build on that as we move forward here. Well, and, and I, will, I yeah. will just make one more thing, Vance. Yeah, um, of course. As we're, you know, no surprise, ATR is going to be supportive of income tax uh, cutting uh, legislation. And then just like it's no surprise when we oppose tax hikes. But one thing we're making a point to stress with legislators, and it ties into what you've been uh, focusing on is we've been urging, at the same time we're urging you to enact tax relief, it is very important to keep spending in check so you don't become the next Kansas. And we, when we say don't become the next Kansas, we mean don't spend too much at the same time you're cutting taxes, whereas the left hears the next Kansas and they just think don't cut taxes. We know there is a lesson to learn from Kansas. It's not the one that the left usually tells you, but there certainly is a lesson to learn, which is if you're going to get to cut taxes, especially boldly, you sure as heck better make sure you're keeping spending in check. And the best way we can see to do that is making sure you're keeping spending growth below the rate of population inflation, as you have led with these conservative budget proposals. And we're spelling that out with folks in a number of states that, yes, you should pursue tax relief, but you really need to make it a point to keep spending in check. And that metric that you've outlined, population plus inflation, yeah, there's a number of decisions that go into how you stay below that. But from our standpoint, as a group that weighs in and fights efforts to raise taxes, it's really easy to determine whether a bill raises taxes or not. Usually the fiscal note makes that fairly clear. But it's never been clear what, what is spending too much in terms of a binary metric. We've often gotten asked over the years, why doesn't ATR offer a spending pledge? Well, the question is, what does that look like? Raising taxes or not is a binary issue. How do you get a binary breakdown of spending? Well, frankly, are you keeping the growth of spending below or above the rate of population inflation? That's really the best binary metric that we've seen for what is spending too much or not spending too much. Now, yes, there's a bunch of detailed decisions that go into adhering to that, 
But in terms of whether you're spending too much or not, we really do see that as the best binary metric. So really appreciate your leadership in underscoring that. And so that's something we're echoing to folks. Particularly, we think it's a good idea anywhere, but particularly if you're cutting taxes, yeah. you really need to make sure you're keeping spending below that growth rate. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. And thanks for all the work that you've been doing on proselytizing this as well. Getting, getting that good message out there. Speaking of Kansas, just this week, I worked with the good folks over there with Dave and Gannon and others at Kansas Policy Institute, and um, they released their responsible Kansas budget. So I was going to announce that, but you already brought up Kansas, so might as well. Um, it's up on our website. I'll, I'll post it here in the chat. But the responsible Kansas budget does this. And, and we even talk about what happened during the brownback years of cutting taxes, but you had excessive spending. I mean, you've got to rein in spending at a time when you're cutting taxes, uh, even though you may get more economic growth and everything else. You know, I'm, I'm a supply sider in that sense. But I also think that you've got to restrain spending um, because if, if not, you will see um, a deficit to where they had to raise taxes, especially when you have these balanced budget amendments that are in place. And so this is the first responsible Kansas budget, right, that's going to be based on all state funds that's going to be covered underneath this spending limit. Fiscal rules, as I'm always talking about fiscal rules, based on population growth plus inflation of uh, the last year, which there in Kansas was 2.32%. And then it says you shouldn't increase by more than a certain amount. Um, and it's a specific number that you can say, to your point, is it above or below that once the legislative session is over? And so we really should be looking at this across the nation. Um, we're up to 13 either responsible or conservative budgets in different states. So we've really got to get this going to where one day, hopefully, we can pass some stronger state spending limits like we did here in, in Texas. And like we've talked about before, many of you, you know, I really think Texas has the strongest state spending limit in the nation now, um, I would argue, given what's in there of, of covering all of general revenue, which is 55% of the budget. You have population growth. It's times inflation, not plus, but that's pretty close the way that it's that it's used. Um, and then the, to exceed the limit is a uh, three-fifths vote instead of a simple majority. So those are some key points in there that I think are even more restrictive than what's in the Colorado's Taxpayer Bill of Rights. So, so thank you for bringing that up and thank you for your work. We'll come back to you in just a second. Um, but given that Michael, you know, we've we've really talked some about and, and you and I have been talking about this for a little while now. And, and you had a piece here recently talking about the importance of spending limits and what to do with some of those funds. So um, I want to get to that and feel free to explain some of that now. But what are you seeing across the states and hearing about what's coming up here in 2022? Well, I think that there are two structural changes that have occurred uh, across the country that speak to the enhanced importance of tax competitiveness. So one was the state and local tax deduction cap from the, the Trump tax cuts, the TCJA, uh, which which came into effect in 2018. So uh, you all know you can only deduct $10,000 of state and local against your federal. So in short, you have to really pay the cost of your state and local government now because you're limited on the salt cap. So that's one big structural change. The other big structural change is the change of remote work. So we're going from an estimated 5% of workers working remote to an estimated 25% is where economists think this is going to play out. Of those 25%, those are probably going to tend to be higher paid workers. And so those folks will be able to, you know, essentially buy into the best quality of life for cost across the country. Uh, so, you know, where Vance and I live has been a huge beneficiary of this in the, well, in the long term and the short term. But it's not just going to be Texas. I mean, obviously, there's a lot going Florida, Tennessee, a lot of other states, North Carolina having huge inflows, Arizona, huge inflows. So those two structural changes, the salt cap is making the cost of state and local government 
real. Like you used to be able to sort of deduct 30 percent of the of, of your state and local tax burden against the federal. Um, now you can't do that anymore. And people could work remote. So you have to compete for them. I second everything that, that Patrick just went through. I think that one thing that policymakers are thinking about is the revenue, you know, surpluses. Are these going to be lasting or are these transient? I think it's a fair question, but the surpluses and the buffer provided by federal money is so big that now's the time to go big. And yeah, so maybe it's not going to be surpluses like this forever, but this is a good time to start buying down some tax rates. Obviously, the personal income tax is going to have a lot of influence on where people move, um, but that's not the only one. Um, Vance mentioned that, you know, Texas has this spending control in place. It's a fantastic spending control. I'm so happy to move into it. I didn't have to fight for it. You know, it's largely been done before. Um, and, and I think the key here is tax reform is an effect. Spending reform is the cause. So if Texas abides by its spending control, which is the inflation plus population, out of necessity, there will be tax reform every, you know, every session year. So every other year in Texas, uh, because there will be structural surpluses as far as the eye could see in, in Texas. So, you know, I would argue just like hook that into a, a uh, tax trigger, just make that tax cut automatic, you know have the Department of Revenue certify a certain surplus. So that means there's going to be a certain tax uh, cut each each budget cycle. Um, so I think that that is a, a key factor. That is, though, Texas kind of way ahead of the curve in a lot of ways fiscally. Um, I think that, you know, the way I've looked at the pandemic period, step one is flush through all the excess federal cash in the least painful way possible. So we know, like, Filling your unemployment fund is a least painful way. You have to spend some of this least painful way. You could cut taxes. And on Patrick's point, uh, some folks are ignoring um, the, the tax mandate, the so-called tax mandate. If others are more cautious, then maybe just advise them to hold on to some of that money. And let's see how the court comes out. Uh, you know, maybe that'll be in a year from now or whatever. So just hold on to some of that because they do have a couple years before they have to finalize all those decisions. So if they want to be cautious, say, okay, why don't you hold some of this in reserve? And if the court comes out saying you can use this for tax cuts, then give people tax cuts. It might end up being like right before an election cycle, which they all love to do anyways. That is one option. But flushing through a lot of this federal cash, high level, I think the goal here is to preserve fiscal federalism. Those two structural changes actually enhance fiscal federalism, remote work, uh, salt cap, that will enhance fiscal federalism. Federal government's coming in here being like, we can't be having fiscal federalism. We can't be having competition amongst the states. And so that's why, you know, that's one of the reasons why we all got flooded. So spend and use that money in a way to preserve fiscal federalism. Um, as Patrick said, lock in rate cuts. You know, that's probably the most important thing is to lock in rate cuts, permanent rate cuts for your most sensitive taxes. So the personal income tax, corporate income tax, but in other states, Texas is probably the property tax. Uh, and then uh, Patrick and I actually spoke about this a little bit. There are structural changes that states ought to make related to their income tax codes that come out of those Trump tax reforms. So there are structural changes on how we treat new investments in intellectual property, machinery, equipment, and you know maybe someday how we treat investments into real property, such as structures that you could look at if you're in a state that has an income tax. Hopefully that's not many people on this call, uh, but I, I know a lot of people do have income taxes in their states. So that's kind of how I thought through this. Two big structural changes, high level goal, preserve and enhance fiscal federalism. I think that we're gonna be pretty solid on that. 
We do have that infrastructure money coming down, which will be a new sort of ball of yarn that we're going to have to unwind and then make your state more competitive. Perfect. Uh, good, good ideas, Michael. And thanks for your work on continuing to message that about like, what to do with that excess money. <laughs> uh, let's not just let it go for additional spending or something, but return it to the taxpayer. I mean, it's it's excess funds that are being collected by the government. Let's go ahead and return it to the taxpayer where they have the productive private sector to create jobs and everything else. So, so thank you for your work on that. And, and speaking of the federal government and some of the things that have been going on there, Kurt, I know you've been following this for a while. Uh, we met whenever we were up in DC uh, when you're at CRFB and you know doing a lot of good work there. And now you're at AFP. And I, I know you have a, a, an idea that we should be looking at more at the federal level, but also it ties with a lot of the stuff that's been happening in the states kind of as a good proof of concept. And so why don't you explain a little bit about that with the unified budget and some of the things that you've been working on and kind of what you've been seeing across the states that we should be aware of. Sure. Well, thanks again for having me on here, Vance. I'm really excited to be here and especially with all of you. Um, so the unified budget concept was actually inspired by states, but as I have dug into it more, I've learned that states can actually benefit from the concept as well. So budgeting is inherently one thing. You put all your income in and you put all of your uh, spending desires in there and you see what you can do. You, can, you see where you can add the most value and you shift priorities around when you need to. The problem is that at the federal level, Congress doesn't actually review the entire budget every year. There isn't actually a budget process properly defined that exists within Congress where all of the trade-offs are supposed to be made. The uh, appropriations bills they consider are only 30% of the spending. Uh, that's the only thing that's supposed to get done every single year. The other 70% is what's called mandatory spending or direct spending. That's not considered in any systematic way every year. Sometimes it kind of gets tweaked in ad hoc ways, but not in like a, a way that members can sort of plan, like how do I engage in this? Um, revenue isn't part of this whatsoever, and uh, certainly borrowing isn't. So members just don't feel any kind of attachment to what the results are. Democrats will say, oh, well, it's just tax cuts and defense spending. And Republicans will say, mostly rightly, that it's entitlement spending growth. But since it's not all together, nobody actually feels, nobody actually can be held responsible for what the outcomes are. And that includes not just the deficits and debt, but also overlap and waste and duplication and spending money on stupid things instead of higher valued things. So that's the federal government. I've written a paper on that. I'll drop the, the link to the press release that has the uh, one pager. I always do one pages with papers and also the paper down at the bottom. At the state level, states by and large do things better. There are 14 states that have one budget bill that is their budget cycle. There's another 16 that have five or fewer, but then there's a couple of states that uh, have a lot more than that. So for example, let's see here, Arkansas is by far the worst. It's 187 bills each budget cycle. Um, and then Oregon and Mississippi and North Dakota and Idaho also have uh, a bunch as well. Um, the least of those group is 46. And so you can imagine that you don't have everything together and um, leadership really has to tightly control the process in order to get it done every year. And it takes up a lot of floor time and there's not really much of a chance for members to say, hey, you know, I think we should spend more here or we should spend less here so we can do a tax cut over here. Uh, so like those opportunities aren't there. So it's a problem. Um, and even some of the states that have uh, nominally one bill, Colorado is an example, they also have Tabor, very cool. But um, only one third of the spending is actually within Tabor 
is within the annual budget process. Pennsylvania and West Virginia are pretty similar. About two-thirds of their spending is uh, what they call a shadow budget in Pennsylvania. It's not part of the annual process, but those states have more than one budget bill as well. So those states can certainly do a better job of putting it all together. Uh, and then beyond that, um, most states don't put tax expenditures in the budget. I know we can, we can quibble about that term, but um, there are special uh, handouts, essentially, to special interests that are included. They're part of the budget. They reduce revenues. And those are often not in the budget. And uh, the revenue statement and revenue policy generally is usually not within the budget bill, which is really a spending bill. And uh, we've talked about Kansas a little bit. That separation, they consider their tax policy without also considering their spending policy. And I would uh, definitely recommend a, a book by um, Dave Traver and Denidri Herbert. It's called What Was Really the Matter with the Kansas Tax Plan? The Undoing of a Good Idea. I've just been reading it. It's fascinating how, how things went off the rails. But anywho, um, North Carolina's budget seems to be one of the best in the country. They actually do put tax expenditures in their budget. And so when members are looking at this corporate handout or special interest tax credit, they can be like, you know what? I would rather that those resources not go to that and go to say tax cuts for income or you know maybe educational freedom expansion or whatever, whatever their other priorities might be, maybe law enforcement. So even though it seems to be one of the very best, you probably could still improve all that. And so when you put it all together, it gives you the full picture. Let's, um, you know, journalists and citizens kind of uh, know who's responsible for what. It gives the full picture and the ownership of the results. It lets, lets legislators shift the resources to higher valued uses in the whole context that you need. And uh, it just empowers all of your legislators to be involved, actually making substantive policy and it reduces the need for the leaders to so tightly control the process. So we call that unified budgets, and uh, there's a lot of potential for that at both the federal and the state level. Oh, and real quick, since uh, we were talking about the situation in the states, you know, we, we're a grassroots organization with 35 state chapters. Some of the biggest priorities for our chapters are tax cuts, especially income taxes, um, you know, particular business tax cuts like business property or business uh, professional occupational licenses. Uh, and then uh, expanding educational freedom is another one and trying to get sort of at the, that long-term pension and other post-employment benefit time bomb. Um, that's another big priority as well. Okay, perfect. Uh, thanks, Kurt. And, and thank you for your work on, on this unified budget approach. Um, and, and if I remember correctly, this was also approved as model legislation at ALEC. That was a different topic. Oh, so, okay. Back to fiscal rules. That was structural balance for states. Yes, that one. You want to mention that real quick? Because that was another sure. thing. On my, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, if we could hold spending to inflation and population in perpetuity, that would be great. Um, there's a lot of states with bloated budgets, but uh, look, I, I'm from Pennsylvania. I live in Virginia. I was born in New York. These are not places where the conservative state budget is likely to take hold and, and stick around, right, at least without some cheating. So an alternative that we've been looking at is uh, structural balance for states. And the idea there is to balance over the business cycle rather than balance every year. So the reason that there's a lot of reasons why these have some benefits, and uh, I'll just walk through a couple of them quickly. It helps prevent overspending during the good years. You get into a pattern where a lot of state legislators are like, hey, we're flush with cash. People are asking for stuff, all the lobbyists. Um, why don't we uh, spend some of it? You know, we'll help our elections and whatever. Well, that 
kind of sets you up for bad news when you get into a recession and you know you no longer have that revenue coming in and now you're forced into making a bad choice between cutting all that spending that you just created um, or jacking up revenue uh, and different states do things differently. This would allow you to deficit spend during recessions, but you would be making up for that, more than making up for it, depending on how you design the rule, with surpluses during the good years. And so um, it gives you more policy stability because you don't have to sort of bounce around depending on you know the revenue coming in flush or coming in short, uh, which gives you more predictability for your residents and your legislators, lets you focus more on the long-term needs. And the other thing that I think is really powerful about it is it, it uh, would increase the state sovereignty that's out there right now, because right now, every time there's a recession, Congress is like, hey, we're happy to give you a bunch of money, but we're going to put some strings on it. We saw that with you know the tax restrictions. We've seen it with a bunch of different things. and um, Or even like in the post-recession period, there's sort of like a, a lagging period where Congress thinks they can just impose a bunch of stuff on states. But um, they only really can get away with that if states are kind of hungry for the money. But if you're actually able to run deficits during the bad years and make up for it with surpluses during the good years, you're basically bailing out your own state across time, and you can tell Congress to take a hike. And your members of Congress, who um, might feel like they have to do it right now because states have annual balance, and you know only Congress, only the federal government can stabilize the economy um, during during recessions uh, or will have a depression, then like they don't have to feel like that anymore. States can take care of themselves. And this also helps with the federal budget because it there's a lot of other stuff that doesn't get a chance to ride along with the state bailouts. So that's it in a nutshell. There's a whole lot more we could talk about, yeah. but uh, I'll stop there. Well, no, I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of good to that, uh, especially given the situation now where we seem to be in these cycles where the federal government wants to provide more and more funding to states given the business cycle that they're in. Um, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that that's not going to be permanent, but it very well could be. Uh, Michael, you said you said you want to you have something else to add. I wanted to really highlight one of Kurt's great points there um, on generally the unified budget. But then he was talking specifically about the tax expenditures. I know it's been talked about how Georgia's film tax credit is so egregious. I looked at it this year, and one of the things I couldn't believe was that the expenditure of the film tax credit is greater than the total corporate income tax revenues for Georgia. So to shorten that, you could repeal the film tax credit and repeal the corporate income tax and have money left over if, if, if they wanted to go that way. So the film tax credit, it's been, um, say, exploding in the last couple of years. It's going to cost the state about $1.2 billion in, in, in you know, expenditures. Uh, the corporate income tax is, is anticipated to bring in around a billion. So they could just ax both of them at once. That Politically, yes, it's very, very hard. But it speaks to the importance of what Kurt's talking about. Like, get this all on the books. Like, wouldn't it just be a far better state to not have a corporate income tax instead of giving out money to people who don't particularly like Georgia to begin with? Yes, it would. Yeah, actually, Michael, <laughs> Michael, on the topic of the Georgia film tax credit, back in 2013, when North Carolina did their famous tax reform, and in the process, they moved out their film tax credit and moved it to a grant. I remember asking folks in Georgia at the time, hey, is, it, is North Carolina doing that? Is that going to make you all consider getting, you know, you know, reforming your notorious film tax credit or getting rid of it or also doing income tax relief? And they said, actually, the, the message around Georgia is that it's incentivizing us to beef up our film tax credit because we think we can really get an advantage uh, now that North Carolina has scaled their back. So talk about um, 
lawmakers just not taking the right lesson from other states. But that, that was something I'll never forget. Some, some perverse incentives in there, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, um, now I think those are good. That's something else we're always tackling here in Texas is the is the same thing, whether it be um, the money that's going to films or other types of items, you know, kind of the um, corporate welfare, corporate handouts, whatever you want to call them, is, is certainly an area that's primed to be to be cut or hopefully eliminated. But as we all know, that's very easy, much easier said than done in, in many ways. Um, you know, I know there's a lot of businesses that are moving to Texas and some of the things that they would, will champion is, for example, our property tax abatements, you know, chapter 313s. And, um, you know, that's on the property tax side. Fortunately, last session, they didn't extend it. So chapter 313 is going to expire at the end of this year. Uh, and, and But there's already kind of a chorus growing that we need to replace it with something. Uh, and so we are working diligently on not allowing that to happen, uh, but but we'll see what happens. Um, speaking of not allowing things to happen, you know, the, the next big question that I have was on federal funds and the influence that federal funds are having on on states and on on their budgets. You know, here in Texas, we received about, well, we received $42 billion from the America Rescue Plan Act, ARPA. $16 billion of that was more flexible funding at the state level that they appropriated during a special session last year for a number of items like hospitals and things dealing with COVID. Um, they didn't use any of it. Well, they did free up some GR for some things that I think will allow for more tax relief in the future, which we'll get into in a little bit. But I wonder what else you're seeing with some of those ARPA funds that these that states should be looking at while they're during their legislative sessions this year. Um, Patrick, what, maybe we'll start with you. Yeah, well, um, in terms of use of the ARPA funds, really, we're just, um, the main thing we're encouraging is not too much specifics, but basically uh, making it so they either get that out the door in terms of one-time tax relief or they, or they put it away in terms of savings. Uh, good use of that, we think. Uh, ARPA funds, one of the better uses of it is topping up your unemployment insurance uh, trust fund. If you have that one, that's good to top it up so it's in good uh, condition, but also it obviously helps uh, avoid automatic tax increases that come uh, in most states when uh, unemployment insurance trust funds get below a certain level. So we're encouraging uh, folks to do that. We, good news is we've seen lawmakers in a lot of states use those ARPA funds for that purpose. Unfortunately, uh, we've seen lawmakers in some states not use it for that purpose, despite it being a glare, glaring need. Massachusetts is one where I'd flag that um, they're they're not really using it like they should be. So, yeah, that's the real big thing we're, we're encouraging. You know, we think topping up UI funds is a great use of it, putting it away in rainy day uh, reserves uh, or plowing it into uh, some form of tax relief. And those are all good uh, uses, we think. We think but just the most important thing is to not put that in towards new permanent spending program so it gets baked into a permanent uh, inflated spending baseline is what we think is most important to avoid. So there's a number of ways you could avoid doing that. And those are some of the ways uh, things we're, we're advocating for. Yeah, no, those are good. And you know, fortunately, Texas, we paid ours off. We had about $7 billion that we owed. Uh, that was something that they did do uh, during one of our special sessions. I was just looking at the list right now for the Title 12 Advanced Activity Schedule, Treasury Direct. California almost owes $20 billion. Um, and, and New York second, $9.4 billion. So we still got some massive amounts that are owed out there, but that's a, those are great points. Michael, what about you? What have you been um, suggesting with some of these federal funds and what have you seen being used so far? Yeah, so the, I mean, the principle that Patrick said, one-time expenditures, best use case is the UI trust fund because it is essentially uh, heading off a tax increase 
Uh, but states have made other, I mean, uh, I think where I live, there's been um, water infrastructure investments. And that's not to endorse uh, a general spending plan, but where I live actually does need water infrastructure. So if you have something that falls within um, the allowable uses of federal funds, that's a one-time expense, then, you know, go ahead and do that rather than the alternative being, you know, a, a recurring expense. The two ways of sort of flushing the money out, and Patrick mentioned one of them earlier, uh, one is if, if you could ask the state to hold some of it and see if they can use it for a tax cut later if they want to wait for the Supreme Court. And two, at the local level, state governments arguably, very arguably, can pass laws essentially forcing local governments to flush that money through as property tax relief. Um, it is uh, it does abide with the um, new rule guidance or the final guidance that um, Treasury just put out this week. So there is a restriction on states using this money to offset a net reduction in tax revenue. So basically to, to use it for a state tax cut. There is not a corresponding restriction from local governments to use it for the same purpose. The guidance that came out actually pointed to using some of this money for property tax relief in the case of someone being in foreclosure because they weren't paying their property taxes uh, so the local could use it for that. Uh, so they actually endorsed a form of property tax relief uh, using local funds. So uh, I think it's very arguable, especially given how the, the tax mandate's weak as it is, it's very arguable that the state can pass a law. And, and Judge Glock and Jared Meyer with Cicero Institute are active, actively trying to do this. So if you're interested, um, talk to them. They have a way to do it. Pass a law uh, forcing locals to flush a lot of that money through in property tax relief. So I think that those are uh, two key ways to really get at this. I do want to speak to this sort of federal state interaction, fiscal federalism, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the federal government is actively in default right now through inflation. So we, we, we've had instances of this in the 30s. You know, we changed our valuation vis-a-vis -vis gold. 1971, we did the same thing. We just came off gold altogether. Uh, and then we had a, about a decade of inflation. The federal government has put itself in a position where it can't make good on its payments. Um, you know, the, the federal government's over indebted, over leveraged uh, to very low interest rates, and they are now actively in default through inflation. This is not an entity that's going to be able to keep ben, uh, bending over to send money to the states. It's actually ridiculous that they do it at all, given that the states, even the bad states, are you know relatively better managed than the federal government. Uh, maybe not all the bad states, but some of the bad states are relatively better managed than the federal government. And so the gov the federal government is in active default. So they should just not be in the business of coming into the states and giving the states money and then sort of manipulating how the states operate. I mean, it should be the other way around. The states should be moving towards what Vance is talking about with spending controls. And that the feds ought to learn from that because uh, if, if we kind of go all the way through with this uh, sort of default by inflation, it's a very ugly place that we're going to be in about a decade. So, um, you know, we could keep going this way where the federal government's just printing up money and saying it to the states and saying this is what we want you to do with it. Or we could have states bubbling up organic solutions, fiscal responsibility, and eventually that acculturating to the, the federal government. I know that's not easy, but... Uh, we're getting close to a point where it's going to go one way or the other. The feds are just going to default via inflation, or they're actually going to have some sort of uh, fiscal controls to avoid uh, a worst-case scenario. Yeah, no, there's a lot of, lot of truth to that. And then we saw just, was it uh, two days ago with the new CPI data, 7% 
increase in inflation year over year. We're still having a rapid PPI, the wholesale prices that are going to be passed along over time as well. So those are things that we need to look at. Um, and then when, when the federal government starts to, to rein in their excess spending in these deficits, one of the places I think they'll look is where to cut going to states. And so that's where the states need to also be concerned about the share of federal funding of their overall budget. Right. And, and, and a lot of that's growing right now. So, for example, within our conservative Texas budget here in Texas, you know, I didn't include the federal funds that came in with ARPA. And, and I've gotten some pushback from that, you know, just to be to be honest about it. But at the same time, I don't want that to be a part of the new base going into next time, because now you've just overinflated the amount of spending that, that could happen over time. Um, it could be a reason not to include some of the federal funds and just look at the state funds with an overall budget. Um, however, I kind of like looking at the all funds, the entire budget, because it's the really the footprint of government that the state is funding, right? So there there are some some trade-offs that's going on there. So those are those are really good points. Kurt, what about you? What have you been seeing and in, in, in thinking about within the federal funds, even some maybe some of the latest numbers that are coming out with, you know, the Jobs Act that happened or even what you're seeing in the future, because I know you've been talking about this some on, on Twitter. Absolutely. So um, inflation is something that doesn't always it isn't always well understood by, by politicians and pundits. So let's just lay it out. Inflation happens when the money supply grows faster than the actual economy is, the real goods and services that are going out there. It's always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon as Milton Friedman talked about. Um, the money supply is basically due to the Fed balance sheet and um, the amount of time that money turns over in the economy. It's called the velocity. Now, the Fed's balance sheet has exploded in the last couple of years uh, as they've absorbed most of the debt that Congress has approved to respond to the pandemic. Now, so far, inflation hasn't been as bad as it could have been because the velocity also dropped but not quite by enough to offset it. If that velocity pops back up to a normal level, then we're talking about you know, an inflation situation that will make what we've dealt with the last year look pretty mild. Um, so the Fed's talking about pulling it back. It's unclear how they actually can if the federal government continues to keep running up the debt, keep borrowing, because you know, eventually, who's going to buy all that debt? So um, that's a real problem. You know, about a third of state budgets come from the federal government. And you're right. I mean, when Congress uh, gets down to it, they probably will look there as one of the places to cut. But uh, let me actually just totally shift gears entirely uh, for a second. Do so, it. Do it. But, you know, we have a certain amount of money that is coming from the federal government to the states right now. Transportation is one of them. There's an interesting interaction between a couple of things that state legislators and policymakers should be aware of. So the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the bi bipartisan infrastructure framework, um, that was enacted into law on November 15th. Those funds, most of them, haven't been able to flow out to the states yet because Congress hasn't completed its appropriations for the fiscal year that we've been in since October 1st. Uh, <laughs> Ima imagine that, them not passing a budget, right? Right. Exactly. Well, it's a partial budget. It's not even a budget. <laughs> Kurt, Kurt, you would know this. When is the last time they passed a, actually passed a budget? I think they've never passed an actual budget. Oh, okay. All right. It's always been piecemeal. Um, yeah. It's better than it used to be in the terms yeah. of like, you know, what's included. But uh, no, it's a dysfunctional process and needs to be fixed. All right. All right. Go on. 
<laughs> so um, and so with the infrastructure bill, they can't actually start giving that money out to states until they pass appropriations. Now, they're looking at doing an omnibus bill that includes all of the 12 appropriations bills, which, by the way, range in size from about six billion up to six hundred billion, roughly speaking. So they're not even close to being comparable. And so at that point, the funds will start to come out. But the IAJA also provided um, a greater amount of, of discretionary grants to Secretary Buttigieg than has ever been provided. So um, typically states get a lot of things in formula grants and then the states figure out how to use the money. In this case, um, that's still gonna be happening, but there's also gonna be a big component of the Secretary of the Treasury deciding which projects get merit and deciding you know, where the money goes, which you know, we'll see how that, plan how that pans out. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. And there's there's a lot more that they could use it for. Texas, so I said earlier, we got $42 billion state and local funding from ARPA um, just with the IJA or the JOBS Act, as we've just kind of shortening it. We're getting about another $36 billion. Um, so it's a pretty massive amount of money. It was interesting, too, because even with ARPA, it's kind of like, OK, how do we spend this money? Um, and so there's some of the same questions that's going on now. Um, what I hope that will be done, at least, is kind of a framework of how to use the funds is make sure there's transparency, try to use it for one, you know, make sure it's one time items and, 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 and upholding some of the contracts that go into the transportation for a number of years. How can we make sure that those are fulfilled in an efficient and effective way? The governor recently released a, a letter, Governor Abbott here in Texas, that said that asked the state agencies to go into the details of the Jobs Act um, documents. And, and and legal language, the law, right? And and to make sure that see what all the strings that are attached, and so that way you can put on pause a little bit of this as some of this uh, goes through. And I think that was a good step in the right direction. They've already set up from ARPA here in Texas to put all this information online, to where there's going to be at least transparency of that. And so what I've been suggesting to the governor's office and others is that they make sure that the Jobs Act funding is also put online for the public and others to see. So those are you know good transparency sort of items. All right. As we're getting into the, the final part of this here today, and I really appreciate all y'all being here and, and also for the audience and those who will watch after this. Patrick, what do you see are some opportunities for states to really uh, you know, get on board with going into this legislative session uh, here for 2022? Um, and and what, do you, what do you kind of see will happen ultimately at the end of a lot of these legislative sessions? Yeah, so I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think we're going to see, like we saw last year, a number of states provide relief to taxpayers, either income or otherwise. Um, one thing I would like to see, and I hope we see more, is more states, as we've seen with North Carolina and, and Tennessee and Montana and Florida and Texas and others, is more states proactively and publicly keep their spending below the rate of population inflation, tout that. Um, what I would like to actually see, and we're, we're urging this in some places where tax re tax reform has looked to be facilitated by revenue triggers, is urging people, to, lawmakers, to consider making your re revenue triggers based on the rate of population inflation. So any any revenue collections that come in above the rate of population inflation get plowed into uh, income tax rate reduction in the 41 states where we have income taxes. Um, if To set up something like that with the, such revenue triggers would get you two things. It would get you both a mechanism to eventually phase out your income tax, but it would also double 
as a spending cap that's population growth and inflation at the same time. And actually, what I'll be interested to see come out of Colorado is a new project that the think tank there, Independence Institute, is working on. They're going to be advocating for a reform to the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, which, yes, it, it, uh, we certainly would like that to cover more of uh, state spending, and that's one of its biggest flaws. But one thing they want to do to improve it is basically they want to take it and turn it into a facilitator for permanent uh, income tax rate reduction ultimately phase out. So as you know, uh, you know Colorado's had a number of uh, income tax rate reductions temporary in recent years that have been in order to comply with TABOR and get excess revenue back to taxpayers. One thing that uh, folks are going to be pushing for out there is to uh, reform that so that when revenue comes in above uh, TABOR's um, collections, it triggers a permanent income tax rate reduction um, and so that TABOR is ultimately buying down, getting you to zero. So Basically, Colorado already has the spending cap, and they're basically turning it into a income tax phase-out facilitator. And the states where they have neither, we're encouraging them to consider doing that as a combination because they can really work together. And so in some of the states where I think we'll see uh, other um, income tax rate phase-out uh, proposals move forward, Wisconsin is one. Uh, I just want to tease out. I think we'll, they'll move more when they have a governor in place, but there's certainly interest there in the legislature, and revenue triggers is one way they're looking to facilitate that. Um, that's something that we're encouraging. And while we haven't seen a state do that, uh, you know, exactly the model we'd like to see it, I think we're pretty close to getting there. We might have that soon. So that's something I would certainly like to see uh, this year. Yeah, those, those are great. And uh, I hope we get to see those as well. That would be fantastic. Michael, what about you? What are you thinking about for uh, this year and what states are going to do and, um, and and where we're going to be at the and maybe at the end of the year? Well, I think Patrick answered John's question. So John asked, you know, some Iowa lawmakers are concerned that if we do a big tax cut now, like it might not be permanent or whatever. I mean, you could you could you could put in a certain amount of that rate cut now and then make the rest of it contingent on revenues triggering the rest of the rate cut. Um, it, it depends on what your surplus looks like. There's obviously enough money to do a substantial rate reduction without having any triggers, but then you can make anything else contingent on triggers. I think that the sort of coming out of it phase does get to what Patrick was describing in Colorado, where Texas is kind of getting to this place too, is, okay, you have spending control, make that precipitate a net reduction in rates. Um, because Colorado, Colorado has absolutely had better revenue and economic growth than it's spending control, but that income tax rate has been sitting at. Colorado's been sitting there with that income tax rate of 4.63% for years and years. It might come down a little bit from there. Um, but I think that that begs the question, if we're going to have the spending control, why not just pour that into the rate reduction so that we don't have to be doing you know, ad hoc rebates every year and things like this. So I think that that's a good point. I think that's the lesson coming out that the federal government, so the federal government has some respect for pre-existing law on tax cuts. We do know that the federal government is inclined to come in and tell states what they can and can't do on tax policy. But you have, if you have pre-existing tax cuts in law, that does make it more difficult for the feds to ever come and mess with you again. That's also an incentive for states to actually go ahead and put tax triggers in, you know, inflation plus population, then you trigger beyond that. As long as you have like a little bit of a you know, enough to bring down a tenth of a, a basis point or a tenth of a, a rate uh, point. Um, so you, you, it's a good time to put those things into law. One, because the federal government just came in and said, we will mess with your tax codes as we wish, uh, but we might have some respect if you already have a rate cut, you know, scheduled in law, we might respect that a little bit more. And two, 
you know, it is a good way to deal with some revenue uncertainty with the the economy, how strong is it going to be? Yeah, I mean, you don't necessarily want to be cutting taxes when revenues are already falling. Um, So just attaching that to achieving these baseline revenue goals, and then you have your tax cuts occur um, out of growth, like you're you're cutting against growth, basically. So I think that that is the big lesson of this experience is get some tax cuts scheduled before the feds can come screw it up for you. And then coming out of it, it's the same solution. If you have uncertainty, just schedule your tax cuts based on revenue availability. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a great point. And um, that's one that's well taken, too, about how the feds will try to keep you from providing tax relief. So go ahead and put it in the law and, and get this going. So we kind of get a twofer here. Um, avoid the federal government in, infiltrating what you're trying to do fiscal policy while at the same time lowering tax burdens into the future. Um, and thank you for your work on that here in Texas. Is that something that we are trying to do with kind of a, a buy down of property taxes being one option? Um, is House Bill 90 during, during the third special session that we're going to keep pushing on that? Uh, but there'll be some other things. Um, Pat, before I get to you, Kurt, Patrick, real quick, you had something about federal revenues you wanted to mention. Yeah, just real quick, and we're not going to go into it too much here because this could be a subject for a whole other conversation, but just something to flag in the infrastructure, federal infrastructure bill that was enacted, there's hundreds of millions in there for to set up state vehicle miles travel uh, tax pilot programs around the country, VMT for short. I don't know how this is going to play out, but I just know as a result of this, there's going to be great pressure in states across the country urging legislators to set up these pilot programs. Uh, and saying that they have to use this money for these pilot programs. I won't get into the debate over VMTs. Um, there's good arguments on both sides, but I think one thing's clear that VMT proponents haven't made clear whether they see it as a replacement to the gas tax or an add-on, which is pretty, pretty problematic that they won't stipulate that. And I think a lot of them actually want it to be an add-on. Um, so while we haven't gotten clear to, about that, I think it's kind of uh, um, concerning that we're going to have all these uh, VMT pilot programs popping up all over the country, as you guys mentioned, funded by a federal government that Michael mentioned is actively in default. Um, so this is a federal use of federal revenue to encourage states to set up a new form of tax, which, again, many of the proponents view as an add-on. So something I'm really concerned about, I don't know how that's going to play out. I just know there's some pressure going to be coming down the pipe for that. So just want to flag that. I think that's going to be a coming battle for another day and a lot of uh, question marks and variables in terms of how that's going to play out. Yeah, yeah. Good good reminder on that. I'd kind of forgot a little bit about that. Um, over the summer, I wrote a piece, uh, a, vehicle, a vehicle miles travel tax is a bad idea. So that's kind of where we're at on this. <laughs> um, but so I'll, I'll share that as well. Um, so thank you for that. Kurt, what about you? We're kind of, kind of looking at What's going on in states? Things that you're 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 working on. We've mentioned a lot of those things already, but you know what are we missing? What are some other opportunities for this year? I think the rest of the panel has done a great job, um, kind of projecting what to expect from the states, from the federal government. I, I think I want to add a, a note of caution about how things could unfold. I don't like to make predictions because you know how economists do with that, but. Um, there's been a lot of dismissal that uh, interest rates might go up. A lot of people seem to think that they'll stay stay really low forever, and I don't think that's the case. And actually, Brian Riedel at the Manhattan Institute just uh, published a, a paper, really good, talking about how the federal budget situation is so bad that even if interest rates were to stay low, then we would still eventually have a crisis. Um, But they're going to go up. And he talks about a couple of reasons. Um, I would flag uh, another one. And that is that from a global perspective, you know, our global capital markets are all integrated now. 
And there are a number of different forces that have pushed interest rates down over the last couple of decades. A lot of those are reversing on both the supply and the demand side. You know, there, there have been a lot of people that have been entering the workforce and saving and building up a nest egg for retirement. Well, the global population is aging. So a lot of that money won't be building up as fast. Um, so that's on the supply side for loanable funds. And then on the, de on the demand side, um, a lot of countries, especially very populated countries, China, India, Pakistan, and a bunch of others, um, they have been improving their business climates like gangbusters. Um, if you look at some of the data from the World Bank's Doing Business report, it's amazing what strides some of these countries have made. And that means that there are going to be a lot of people that find it easier to start and maintain businesses. So they're going to want to borrow to be able to invest in their people and their facilities, all that. So that's a, a demand for funds that will also push up interest rates um, in addition to everything else that's going on. So the lesson from that is that everybody really needs to be careful about how exposed they are to this interest rate risk. Um, and people in DC are not only not thinking about that at all, they're actively denying it could ever be a problem. So states, households, businesses, governments, it's time to get ready for um, for protecting yourself from all the, the different ways that this could turn out quite badly. Wise words, Kurt. Um, and it's been interesting this entire year, you know, see my uh, colleague EJ and Tony, it, it's on here as well. And we've been writing a lot about, you know, at first it was, was transitory inflation in, in the short term or that there wasn't any inflation. Then it was transitory. Now, you know, and now they're, they're writing it off again and now it's too high and you just never know where they're going to be. And I think to that point, there's also something with the interest rates um, is that they're going to stay low forever. And as soon as you start thinking that way, then that's usually when it starts to go the other way. Um, and so I do think that it's got to go up at some point and it will. I mean, just last year, in fiscal year 21, interest payments on the debt was uh, right around $560 billion. And so that's a massive amount of money, even with that, even with interest rates staying pretty low. Um, and so you're going to continue to see that ratchet up, which means crowding out of the federal budget and other things that were going on. You know, I know it, whenever I was in the White House at, at OMB, we were looking at ways to try to rein in the growth of government spending. Of course, that didn't see the, the light of day once it gets to Congress. Um, and maybe we could have pushed it a little bit better. Um, but if, but we do need to make some key reforms. And so I'm hopeful, you know, that's why I'm, I'm bringing everybody together for these conservative budget discussions because we need to keep showing proof of concept among the states. And when we start getting more of these states doing these things, uh, whether it's, you know, what I've been proposing, conservative budget approach or responsible budget approach with population and inflation, but limiting government spending, which is the ultimate burden of government, will be in a better position for people to have lower taxes and more prosperity in the private sector and hopefully showing the way for what the federal government should do. Um, so I appreciate for all of you, you all, all of you being here today. Um, thank you for taking out of your time to do this. And um, thank you for always being a happy warrior and uh, have a great day. Let people prosper. Talk to you soon.